2: Hello and welcome to the Mothball Prophecies. I'm Samantha Mashburn. And
1: I'm Jill Huffman.
2: And today we're sitting down for a special second interview with a highly requested guest and a Mothballer favorite here on the Patreon exclusively, Hayden Peters. Hi. Hello, Sam and Jill. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you oh, for doing well. this with us. Happy to be here. We were you know, uh, we were talking a little bit before we started recording, and we have had lots and lots of requests and comments about your episode. It's on the top of our most listened to episodes, and we selfishly waited to have you on in February because what goes best with mourning than sentiment? And to and who else are we going to ask all the questions about <laughs> the love month and sentiment in itself than you, really? Well, thank
0: you. And I mean, that's the joy of it, really, because if you can't have love, you can't have memory. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where people misconstrue a lot of the jewels that are considered morbid because, no, they're actually tokens of love and sentimentality. Mm-hmm. So living or dead, without love, you can't have the jewel in the first place. And this is why we do what we do.
2: Yeah. And we had a lot of people that sent us messages on Instagram after your interview and they were changed because they thought that hair jewelry and different things like that or mourning jewelry was macabre and weird and something to be afraid of. And then they're like, now I have people coming up to me in my day to day life that I had no idea had collections. And they're like, we have a family hair wreath. It hangs in my grandma's house mm-hmm. here in Idaho. And I'm like, wow. So it really, I feel like it opened a really great door for people that were maybe a little more scared of it than they should be.
0: This is true. How wonderful. And to take away the stigma of the negativity around it, and I think the 20th century has so much to do with changing the proprietary nature of gift-giving, love, and sentimentality that our society and our homogenous society through commercialization has taken away The idea of the self being something which you could actually give to somebody else Mm -hmm. and has replaced it with a mechanical device, in which case the photography that we take, which is part of our cameras and part of our daily life since Eastman Kodak's Brown camera in, I think it was 1901, um, accessible photography, has replaced the idea of giving a gift of hair and it should be something we do. Mm -hmm. Obviously, Do your parents have a lock of your hair when you're a baby? And do they keep it in plastic? And do they keep it with your photographs? And generally people in the West say they do. Mm -hmm. So it's still part of your society and culture. It's just when you get older, you start to think, oh, it's negative. Mm -hmm. But no, I couldn't think of anything more beautiful than carrying around something of a loved one. Mm
2: -hmm. I had um, lots of people, because I'm a hairdresser, lots of people that have listened to the show and then be like, it's just so weird that it's hair. And I say I bring that example up. I go, do you keep locks of your children's hair did you request it or did you and then they go they're not connecting that as a as a, an item of sentiment really because it's it's just a it's yeah. a every day every occurrence thing i mean you think about cutting your baby's hair for the first yeah. time and you're like i'm just going to keep some of this
0: that's right we think it's disposable because we chop it maybe once a month and it's something we need to have changed constantly mm-hmm. but Think about, you know, the disjecta membra of the body and what is it that you would want to give somebody. And I can't think a, a nail or a tooth is that pleasant. So perhaps hair is a little nicer to give.
2: <laughs> Painless. It's a, a very good point. Renewable I don't want resource. Your <laughs> You know, oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> never mind. I got to send your gift back. <laughs> <laughs> it was just my teeth. That's all it was. Yeah, you can keep that. You okay. might need them later.
0: I actually had my baby teeth from when they were falling out. And, you know, I somehow snuck them away from the tooth fairy and I kept them. And I kid you not, my mother threw them away and when I was moving house. It must have been about 1994. And um, she denies it to this very day.
2: <laughs> She's, She's like, I didn't do anything with them.
0: I want my teeth back, damn it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Those were mine. My mom had ours in the top
1: drawer of her jewelry box, which that that is, yeah. I... <laughs> I will admit it. I threw my kids' teeth away. Did you? I did. Oh. I just. I can't. It just was all bloody and gross and nasty, and oh. I just couldn't. It's okay. Try it.
0: I just. Antiseptic. Didn't. That's what you yeah. know. God created antiseptic for. Just throw them in and clean them Give up. Give a that's little switch. It's true. Circle them around. Couldn't.
1: I can't. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. I forgive you. So I deal with it's that funny. kind of stuff all the time in my
2: daily life. You know, life, oddly so. enough because you you know think people would think you probably would because you're in the medical field like teeth whatever Uh, but i didn't keep any of my son's hair from his first haircut and i did his first haircut i didn't it's haircuts are so routine to me that i just like did the haircut and swept it up and i was like
0: i should (laughs) have
1: you're like maybe
0: it's the one thing i'm not sure if i've mentioned it before but when my brother passed away when I went to view him and uh, I asked for a lock of his hair, it was just automatic. I mm-hmm. didn't think anything else. I just wanted something to capture that and keep it with me. And even The um, the Undertaker was a bit taken aback. Why would you do that? And I'm like, because I want it. Mm-hmm. it was, and I've still got my grandmother's hair too. She passed away a few years ago. Uh, so those things I treasure more than any jewel. Mm-hmm. I can have jewellery, you know, forever in a day and I can have, I can have kings and queens, which I do, but that piece of my brother's hair, that's worth more to me than any jewel Mm -hmm. I'll ever own.
1: Yeah.
2: Have you ever had your brother's hair turned or your grandmother's hair turned into any type of, just simple as it is?
0: Yeah, it's kept in the safe with all of my other jewels Mm -hmm. and uh, I couldn't because having known the the hair artist industry so well and the way they used to market themselves as being, if you give us one ounce of hair, we can turn it into an entire necklace. And you know, just the reality is, they're just color matching it, throwing it away, and then they'll give you a few offcuts to say yeah. that's your actual loved ones hair. Yeah. No, I don't. I, I, as much as I love and and support and trust so many people today who keep doing the hair art, personally, well, it's too sentimental for me.
2: It's a big risk to take thinking that you could lose it forever, for sure. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. I think that's a, a good point is that with all the sentimental jewels that we have, being a collector and being someone who is an historian on the subject and having to deal with so many different families that have been lost over time, mm. it makes you wonder just where they became lost in that sort of time stream where a family might have become impoverished or broken up or intermarried, who knows. But, mm-hmm. you know, that jewel does belong to the family. It is that keepsake. Whether it's a wedding ring and they've become mourning rings too, through are, who knows, a lock of someone's hair, which really should be part of that family. But mm-hmm. all, all we can do is be curators for them and try and understand their stories as much as possible.
2: Yeah, I got um, for Christmas this year a locket, a compact from my mother-in-law. And she says, she goes, you have to open it the right way because there's something special inside of it. And I was like, oh. oh. And I opened it and there was the tiniest ringlet of blonde oh. hair. That's no bigger than a dime tied with a little teeny ribbon. Beautiful. And I look at it and I'm, I'm like, who did you belong
0: to? How did yeah. you come to live with me yeah. in
2: my cabinet where you're most definitely loved?
0: Yeah. That's what I love about the simpler hair weaves, especially any, any anything really, but 19th century in particular, because the industry was so big that hair artists were a, a thriving industry and a very aggressive one against themselves because... In only the space of about four streets in London, you've got up to 12 hair artists competing against each other for business. So when I see the ones that have just got that simple little curl or a little twist and a little ribbon or some sort of maybe a little bit of wire, just tying it together, you know, that's the actual hair. Mm-hmm. That's the actual person. And I love that so much more than the very elaborate, you know, overly detailed hair ones, which God knows, you know, who knows where that hair came from.
2: Right. Or if it was even from, yeah. Yeah. One of my, you know, the curse and blessing of doing this show is... Jill and I have seen things we've never seen before and now they're like at the top of our list versus kind of muddling through maybe the beginnings of an antique you know and collecting and one of the things that I find most charming about hair work now is the same thing you were mentioning is the simplicity like I would love to have a like book of hair that people have hand sewn onto the pages and it has all of the information written on it about who it belonged to and I just, I think that's more charming to me than what I would have wanted before we spoke with you would have been like a huge hair wreath up on the wall with gimp work and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And now I just want a weird book that I can just be like, look, (laughs) look at this.
0: That's the thing. And especially when you see them, I, I was given a collection or I purchased a collection from a lady in London back to 1760. So it had a lot of photography in the compacts with hair on the other side, very simply placed. Uh, servants and family members, that, and the kids did not want it at all. She was a uh, retired elderly lawyer. Mm-hmm. And I said, look, I'll purchase the entire collection because she just wanted me to handpick what I wanted. Uh, the kids had taken anything with a diamond or a gem, which I couldn't care less. One lock of hair is worth so much more to me than any diamond in the world. Mm-hmm. So I, I said, I'll take it, but you've got to maintain who that person is and write it down for me so I can have the provenance. So I've got pictures of, yeah, her servant, family servants from the 19th century in these velvet compacts. And it's so beautiful, but nobody wants them. Right. It's are here. there. It's, it's wild. It's crazy.
2: I see. And those are the things I think we're all in good company with that effect of we would want to keep those things for the purpose of maintaining their legacy, no matter mm. how uh, silly it was. Mm-hmm. to the original collector to be like, oh, these were not just paupers and peasants and they didn't. And those I think are more interesting to me than people of, of any type of uh, wealth or hierarchy or monarchy.
0: Absolutely. It's so much more important to me because especially with the jewels of anyone who was of status, they made multiple pieces. And if it's a commemorative piece for a certain nationalistic event or the death of a monarch, obviously unless it's got the hair work, they made hundreds if not thousands of pieces of a certain kind because they were nationalistic pride, they were souvenirs. Mm -hmm. Uh, It could be for a coronation as well. So let's say it's Edward VII coronation. The jewels that were made for that particular one were made of brass and paper and they utilised photography very, very well. There are some beautiful examples, but they're disposable. They're just made for that instant and there are tens of thousands because the more people that wear something that is a symbol, the more people carry a message and it's propaganda at its mm-hmm. most simple in jewellery, but it still carries that resonance of love. It really does. Mm-hmm. But for me personally, I just like the, the ones with a simple message, which doesn't have to be flashy. It doesn't have to be special, just humble. Those are the ones that really maintain something. And I think that unfortunately a lot are lost because they weren't designed for a common sentimental style unless someone had a lot of wealth. So the honest truth is as marriages became cheaper and more accessible for people, especially during the late 18th and 19th centuries, you've got wedding bands, you've got these really basic wedding bands which now, as opposed to maybe posies of, say, the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries, they are cheaper, made from alloys sometimes and not meant to be kept forever. I love them when they're worn down and actually bent to the size Mm -hmm. of someone's finger. And I think, God, what a message. But they don't have anything written in them. You, they're, they're mostly lost as a story. Mm-hmm. But still, how, how loving that someone's worn that to the sake of having it pressed against their skin to the point where it's it's molded.
2: Right. They Fabulous. just, yeah, let it get beat by what they did for a living or yeah.
0: scratched. And
2: yeah. I, yeah. I think that's, that's charming. Sense. And I think, you know, I wanted to, we wanted to sit down and be like, where does... Was sentiment always a thing? Like, we've always, as human beings, shown our adoration for people with gifts. But, like, looking at a broad stroke of it and seeing how it's changed over each century and then each movement is so captivating to see what the items of love and sentiment were from when it started to where it is now. When did, when did it really start to affect modern-day culture, do you know, of showing sentiment?
0: Absolutely. It really does date back to the Romans because most of our tradition is a Christian appropriation of what the Romans did. So the oldest one would be the mani in fede, the holding of hands, and that is a symbol especially produced in jewellery, very much a Roman tradition. So I'm going to butcher the, Roman, uh, the Latin here.
2: That's but okay. It's a
0: dextrarum inuctio, And that would be the Mani and Fadi, this wedding that people would have and the clasping of hands. The meaning of the wedding didn't really change up until about the 18th century. You've got people who are from the wealthier sort because they could produce jewellery. Let's face it, they're the ones who are wealthy. Now, they would produce these jewels to be given out to the opposite family, and these jewels would be worn as almost tokens of that sentimentality and wealth, such status. Now, that only changed in about uh, 1753 with the act of marriage, but it was always this more like a political thing between families for um, property, for a title, and the symbols that happened around about that time were replicated all the way through the Middle Ages until, and are still today. So you've got your claddagh ring, um, the Gimel rings, which uh, Gimel, Gemellus, the, the two, so you see interlocking hands that pull apart in the jewels. They are still they're Roman tradition, so a lot of our sentiment is there. And you've got the the putti, which is represented with the Cupids, and they turned into angels because of Christian appropriation. Those are in the jewels as well. But really, it's the holding of hands. Those those are some of the oldest ones, and you see them all over the place. You see them as nationalistic pieces in the UK, um, but they're just common. It's common because holding of hands is one of those immortal things that. It, you know, people do, they, they clasp hands and they're unified and they're together. And that shows that, that fidelity between two people. So that's one of the oldest.
2: Now does that, I just had a thought as you were describing the Romans making jewelry for the opposing family, does that Mm -hmm. kind of, is that the ties of a dowry all the way back to the Roman empire of kind of paying for or trading of, because marriage was, a sign of financial wealth for families continuing was that is that kind of linked back to it or am i reaching
0: no no no. that's absolutely linked in it goes back even further it goes back to, you can find this uh, back through to the egyptians um around the middle east as well so it is all interconnected but in terms of modern you really do have to look at that christian appropriation and how in the west we kind of made it work for us and then develop into more of a custom. And as a custom with your weddings, with your betrothals, with your sentiment of giving, so I'm working on a big piece right now about the sentiment of identity in photography and also miniatures, and to be giving that to a loved one, there is proprietary around your own image. So to be giving something which is a miniature portrait to a loved one in the 18th century is very much a sign of betrothal or potential because you're not giving that to any other random stranger. It's something which is, I mean, it takes time to produce, takes a lot of money, and you're not going to have multiples of these made. So at a time of very, very high wealth in the middle class and the younger crowd as well, so that younger middle class, which was growing up through a time of, our, our parents have been in a merchant class for maybe two or three generations. We've got an upwardly mobile middle class, which could now have this laissez-faire lifestyle and this is around your 1750s and 60s to about the 80s and they are contentious they're young they're spurred on by the ideas of the enlightenment and they're going back into classicism and they're pulling as much from italy as they possibly can so here's where we see a huge change in sentimental gift giving because they're using what was popular by the romans and the italians still produce these things whether it was the um, Giardanetti jewellery, that means little garden. So you've got these jewels with this little like diamond vases with sprays of different flowers with different meanings coming out of them. Some were for death, most were for love. Always love, anyway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But they were gift giving because obviously very very wealthy, middle class, travelling. They're going around Europe and they're taking and appropriating uh, history, um, history of. Uh, let's say, historical artifacts from uh, Rome. They're taking it from wherever they could find in as far Eastern Europe as they could and taking that back into the UK. So that's where we see a lot of cameo production um, and the sentiments that were in the cameo. So classicism in depicting the, the love and relationship between two people as maybe a, a Roman or a Greek scenario.
1: Mm.
0: Which is
2: um, where the urns come into play, right?
0: Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. And you've got things like the the dove and the birds and the appropriation of that. You've got the lady holding it within a cage to protect her virtue and if the cage is open, she's offering her virtue to the loved one. That's a very typical scenario in a lot of classical art. And you you see these wonderful pictures of two lovers with the bird, maybe two birds at a, a fountain. So it's showing their prosperous and fruitful union. And they always have some sort of resonance with children and successful families within very, very typical for um, whether it's the, a gift given to a wife and she's nurturing, she might have a pelican with her, she's um, maybe exposing a breast and it's showing there's that fertility and there's also growth there. And there's also a kind of uh, vulnerability as well. But it always comes back to successful family, marriage and children but at this time, so I mentioned the act of marriage in 1753. Before that, there were these fleet marriages. So people were going to uh, basically have, they weren't illegal weddings, but they were going to the prison where it was safe to have a wedding because it was officially ordained. But the, the act of marriage made it so that people had to go into a church and had to have a, a marriage ban be published, and you had to have someone from the clergy there as well to officiate. Oh, Wow. But here's the thing, and I, I don't mean to be crass, that a lot of our, a lot of the sentiments are commercial. So, from a government and, and a political perspective, this was very smart for the government to try and make this taxed. So mm-hmm. to have a marriage which people are paying for, and also there was a huge push by the wealthy families who were getting very angry that they were actually losing out on money because of these illegal marriages which were happening because they weren't basically forming that pact between the two families so they weren't getting their financial comeuppance and reward. And these people are doing it for the sake of love. Um, It caused a huge push into Scotland, actually, because they were running off into Scotland and getting married to avoid the marriage act. (laughs) And married and the parents are getting more angry. Uh, Some marvellous accounts of, um, especially from women in diaries, being very angry about their arranged marriages. And People would be arranged to be married in their very early teens Ugh. is very typical. So between uh, around about 12 years old is the average, but it could be even about 8 to 12. So that's all, that's all by the parents. Um, and you do see that there's a change in the jewellery and the sentimental gifts that were given around about this time. But it also comes with uh, the change in the self and the, uh, the humanity that came from the Enlightenment. So a lot of this libertarianism, so you've got life, liberty, property, egality, fraternity, etc mm-hmm. this change was such a contentious one that these wealthy young people who would, let's say, if you're any higher aristocracy or even royalty, uh, getting up to 50 pounds, sorry, 50,000 pounds as an allowance a year. Geez, Louise. Astronomical.
2: Astronomical.
0: So George Fourth, when he was Prince Regent and before actually Prince of Wales, uh, he, was, he was actually going back to Parliament to ask for, like, another lifeline of £60,000 because he'd spent all his money. And that's a huge taxation drain in the United Kingdom, massive. Yeah. It also caused a lot of negativity there. But they were contentious against their parents. They were having these marriages and they were trying to do it for the sake of love. And that also correlates with lit- uh, literacy, so we didn't have uh, the, the dictionary until Samuel Johnson. Esse- essentially, everything was phonetic. So you've got poetry, literature, high literacy, people reading about politics, arts, and science, and they're sitting in their parlours and salons and they're having these conversations, and they're, they're crafting beautiful poetry of love and sentimentality for their others. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, most of them are university educated.
2: Is this where it starts but- to move into the pre-Raphaelite era?
0: very much yeah the, the pre-raphaelites so it's about uh, about a 40-year difference there so until that really took off I'm gonna get really technical now but it's I, okay I'm please do
2: it's nice to sit because we've had uh, we had a wonderful guest on that opened you know Jill has a great understanding of finer art in the different movements more than I do and then we had this beautiful guest on the show that was speaking about these different things too. And so we were both able to go through and connect the dots. So now it's nice to sit and have like the missing pieces kind of fall into these holes that we both have of being like, okay, but when did this start to change? And then to hear you say the names of things and be like, Oh, okay. I know where we're at. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and what the art looks like and what the movement was that was happening. It's just a really cool side note. So
0: I'm, please get as technical as possible. That's all right. I'll, I can jump around just because let's say I'm traveling you through from the 1780s. So 1789, we've got the storming of the Bastille. Then we've got the terror in 1790s. And that changed everything because the terror was actually mildly supported by George III and the British because, okay, this is a, obviously it's an overthrow of the French, which is it is what it is. I won't go there. Um, you can read between the lines. <laughs> but uh, when they saw the terror and they saw the, the outfall of that, then they got very concerned. And that enlightenment, that libertarianism was terrifying. There was also a huge push from the Catholics in Ireland especially, but also the Catholics that were around, they, they were there, uh, and they weren't getting equal representation. They they couldn't have equal representation at the universities until the 1870s, and they didn't get representation in politics until 1829, okay, the Catholic Emancipation Act. So the British were actually very concerned from the politicians because they were worried that there might be a recurrence of what just happened in France. They did not want that, obviously. So through the 1790s, and then you've got this turn of the century you've got napoleon you've got the napoleonic wars there has to be this british fervor of nationalism which also ties into commercialization and gift giving mm. uh, in 1805 you've got the battle of trafalgar and the amazing artifacts commercial artifacts plates cups uh, everything everything you could think of flags and also jewelry that was produced to commemorate that occasion But that just shows that nationalistic love and pride and that would be shared between people but after that the neoclassicism that we'd seen was being challenged that challenge came from that fear of okay the enlightenment has actually caused this huge problem for us and it's destabilized europe and it remember napoleon was still very popular so there was this push against it into the middle ages and this is what we have to thank for our arts and crafts movement and for Art Nouveau, which I love very much because it's so beautiful. It's all love, 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 mm-hmm. beauty, beauty, beauty. And that push back into the sort of 15th and 14th centuries. There was a, okay, the Industrial Revolution is causing mass urbanization. There's a lot of sickness and illness. There is a very high mortality rate because children are putting into factories and women, thousands of women were working in factories too. It was a huge industry for women to go from the cottage industry into a factory. You've got uh, the steam press. You've got burning coal. You've got very, very poor health conditions. And people wanted to go back to that agrarian society. And then you've got designers appropriating this and you've got Augustus Welby Northmore-Pugin who was the premier gothic designer in architecture and he also did jewellery for this time and he had a, a series that he published which was trying to contrast industrial current society with what it was like back in those days and it wasn't just the christian values which were certainly a huge huge part of it but it was showing that the craftspeople and the people who were operating individually back then weren't factory workers and they were commoditizing in the factories the craft and the art it used to go into architecture and jewellery production. So Northmore Puget, he uh, was actually the one who designed the Palace of Westminster, but he was also a Catholic. So two other people had to submit his work to be approved for that. So if you've seen where Big Ben is, there you go, you've seen his work. Wow. And during the 1820s, that that fear through design was very much at the forefront of what the politicians were thinking. So when it came out to the contract for that, it was either design in an Elizabethan style or design in a Gothic style. Mm. And there was about one million pounds with a further 500,000 pounds in their money put into building cathedrals around the United Kingdom. And so that designing- explains
2: the Gothic influence of all the cathedrals because they were all being built at the mm-hmm. same time period. See my brain? Look at it just exploding <laughs> in front of you guys.
0: There you go. And, that, and here's where uh, going in, and we'll go into sentimentality because here's where Victoria and the politicians were very smart. So this particular style of movement, and I won't go into Tractarianism and the Oxford movement because there were Catholics who were really trying to massaged the catholic ritual back into the church of england mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. they eventually all turn catholic but that's another story <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah when catholics well, first started to get that true opposition of not being the top dogs anymore yeah, then they're like how do we keep people let's scare them let's come up with some deadly is. sins
0: you go into the vatican and you feel very very tiny and that's a design decision that's the same with the gothic revival it's meant to house and contain a society and make you feel kind of small and from a political perspective this is very smart because victoria you know, she had several death threats against her and she was quite young you know she's mm-hmm. 18 but she's also incredibly popular with say the upper classes but you've got a lot of you know people who were there was a great famine uh it was during the 1840s and that really overtook europe but it was Incredibly bad. You've got the potato famine also. Um, so what does that do? It's creating so much discontent. So appropriating the Gothic style and the the sentimentality of gift-giving and commercialization from Victoria and Albert was genius, marketing and propaganda. Mm. So for her first birthday in 1820, uh, Victoria received a love heart locket that she wore around her neck. And it had the hair of Prince Edward, Duke of Kent, and her mother, Victoria of Saxe-Coburg-Sarfield. And that is her first birthday gift. Also programs Victoria to look into that as being the primary way of gift-giving. And she was very verbose and and very open about giving her hair to friends or family members when she travelled or if they, they came and saw her. And it becomes part of her psyche. So she's appropriating the things that were popular from sentimental gift-giving and, from a symbolic perspective, love hearts. That's what she grew up with. Mm. And now she's using that as her way of gift-giving. So between her and Albert, they gave so many tokens of sentimentality that popularised the sentiments, um, even for her engagement ring. Um, she received uh, a serpent ring with rubies rise and a diamond at the mouth. And... the the uptake of serpent jewelry and how popular that became as a sentiment for the 1840s was exponential. Even I've got many, many examples of serpent jewelry just because Victoria received an engagement ring.
2: Well, and it was, this is so interesting to me because you usually only hear the other side of Queen Victoria and mourning. You hear about everything that happened when her husband died. And I don't know that I've ever heard this side of it of how she obviously her comeuppance and she didn't know any different she was just like this is what we're it's just in the industrialization of the world at that time and wow she was a smart businesswoman to go let's make this wow this is just my brain is (laughs) falling into itself right now
0: that's the genius of it all and that's you know it took me about fifteen years to understand that narrative, like because I 've done so much research over all my life to understand it better, and now that I understand it very, very well, it completely makes sense, and it, you can see it also as being a huge piece of propaganda for the British Empire, obviously internationally, because her husband Albert, he was very smart in utilizing industrialization and making the British culture the forefront of every form of art and craft and manufacture the entire planet around, and that's the Great Exhibition of 1851 to showcase that. And so everything that was produced and showcased in these great exhibitions was taken and reappropriated. And you might have, say, famous jewellers such as Castigliani, uh, Italian traditionally and his children in the UK, and they're producing amazing jewellery that has these classical references in them throughout the rest of the 19th century and showing them off, whether it's cameos through to, maybe uh, Etruscan revival in the 1870s and all of the let's I don't like to denigrate let's say lesser jewelers that weren't as famous would copy these designs and the world over whether it's in America or the colonies here people would people would copy because they were popular Um, the Australians copied arts and crafts and also the um, art nouveau movement but also the Etruscan revival pieces in their own styles of course but those great exhibitions were just generous showcases of quality of the empire and the things that Victoria and Albert did and the things that they read and the people who wrote, they were the things which were being used by the politicians and also are the backbone of our sentimental culture today. You've got the white wedding, Queen Victoria. Yes, there, was, there were white weddings before that, but her popularisation of the white dress is why we have the white wedding, we have the gift giving. So we've got things like Valentine's Day cards, we've got things like Christmas cards. And the minute that Albert would give one to family, to her, to other family members, all of a sudden the uptake in production. Because remember, we've got the steam press, we've got cards mm-hmm. being manufactured on mass, and that's the the. Okay, so to give a <laughs> bit more context in the area. You know, it's one thing to say a symbol is a symbol. And remember, the cataloguing of these symbols, whether it's flora and fauna, so flowers, a very popular one Let's focus on flowers, the language of flowers at this time, and also colour theory, are two things which are happening concurrently, because science through the Enlightenment is now becoming an official role and a task of official people who are being trained into it. So you've got people uh, trying to create things like colour wheels and try to put an emotion to a colour. So colours mean this and also flowers mean that. So when you combine the two together, you've got jewellery that was given and now it has more of an official sentiment. And if it's published on, say, a a greeting card or a Valentine's Day card, that rose means this, Mm -hmm. that lily means that. Could even well, you'll have to read an essay that I've written on the gift giving of cards for uh, and the etiquette of cards. But uh, funerary cards weren't in vogue until the 1870s, 1877 to be a bit more precise. But in jewellery, let's look back a little bit. I mentioned the Giardini rings, the little flower. The sentiment of the the flowers goes very far back. So we've got sentimentality really from the the Middle Ages for the main established flowers that we understand, you know, your roses. But it wasn't until the early 19th century that we have people trying to make this into a a proper language, so everything meant something. Mm -hmm. Um, We've got people uh, like Henry Phillips who published floral patterns in 1825 and Frederick Schobel following this up in 1834 But it wasn't until The Language of Flowers was published in 1856, and I'm just holding up a little book of it here.
2: where
0: It's incredible. So every flower by Mrs. Burke is catalogued, whether it's the, um, the bittersweet nightshade meaning truth or the bindweed meaning humility or jasmine meaning amiability. And the funny thing is, especially with flowers, well, is narcissist, egotism. <laughs> what that a stretch, a guys.
2: There, <laughs> was that the last one to pass over that guy's desk? He was like, I'm so tired of looking at flowers and finding a meaning.
0: Well, it's the funny thing is, and especially when it comes to sentimental jewelry, at the end of the day, it's always going to mean love and fidelity. And that, that Mani and Fadi, the two hands, um, having two hands clasped, fidelity is so important to the relationship. So the jewelry did have, especially the Victorians, You'll see a common pattern with jewelry with knots, with buckles, and serpents. So they all have kind of a royal connotation, whether it's the, the garter, the, the Holy Order of the Garter, and that's the buckle, but also from the perspective of the people who weren't of the Holy Order, it's a buckle. But what does a buckle do? It entwines itself and locks around itself. So much like the serpent, the Ouroboros eating its tail, it's eternity, it's forever, it's love. And the the knot, the lover's knot, same thing. And many, many jewels were produced with many, many different symbols within them. Um, faith, hope and charity, two, uh, three of the most common ones, I should say. Um, interestingly enough, they've got a different kind of background and always... Everything's biblical, by the way, so you've got to go back to the Bible, especially for the Victorians to understand the sentiment as it was basic. So for faith, hope, and charity in a contemporary setting, it was hope. So you've got the anchor, um, you've got faith, obviously the cross at the top of the anchor is very typical, and charity, the heart. So when you combine those three, you've got three of the most popular symbols of the 19th century, used in brooches, given out. Um, Sentimental designs of this era were much softer in terms of gift giving because they were produced in high volumes and could be given to more of a sweetheart as being a statement of I'm going to marry you. You know, Mm -hmm. it's more of a sentimental gift and it it reduces the the fungible value of the gift. So the token of love as a non-fungible item that couldn't be replaced with the idea of love being something that isn't, it's not affordable, you can't just give money for love, it starts to become a bit more, dare I say, cheaper because the, pe- the pieces became cheaper. And for Faith, Hope and Charity, it was really the hope was the most popular one of the turn of the, say, the during the Napoleonic Wars because you've got loved ones going off to battle, going off into the Navy, and very typically you would have a lady leaning against the anchor and pointing mm-hmm. towards the ship going off to sea. ship not just the person leaving, but also the soul departing. So, you know, there's death in in its connotation there. But because of nationalism, it becomes a very popular symbol. But with the Gothic revival period having this resurgence of Christian family values, which, supported by Victoria and her nine children, once again we have, we've got that faith, and then we've got the heart. So the, the heart being, you know, one of the oldest symbols almost anthropomorphic. There are examples going back uh, to prehistory of carved hearts in pebbles and stones.
2: Wow.
0: So we, I've, I've done a lot of research around that too, and I've been very interested to see the development of the heart. Um, it did change and morph during the 18th century as jewellery designs changed, especially, um, I mean, colloquially known as the Georgian heart, but these pieces generally... Uh, by about the turn of the 19th century to about 1820, 18, no, 1830, um, they've got wonderful gems in them and these acrostic jewels, they call them, because this, the first letter of every gem equates to regard, so ruby, emerald, amethyst, re-garnet, uh, amethyst, uh, ruby, diamond, so R-E-G-A-R-D, first wow. letter of every gem. And that's, oh, wow, I'm really, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm piling it on today. But no, 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 no this like,
1: is perfect. Right.
0: This is great. So the heart-shaped lockets became so popular. They were larger but often beaten gold because gold at this time was actually difficult to attain because it was going into the war effort that was what was protecting the British Isles, and obviously the French completely drained their finances because of the Napoleonic Wars. Mm. So these pieces look fabulous, and they've got this work called canateal work, which is almost like beaten and threaded wire, and it makes the pieces look large, but gold is not plentiful, so the pieces need to become as big as they could possibly be. However, gems at the turn of the century, and I talked about colour theory, um, Goethe was one of the first people to look into or popularise at least colour theory in the modern era. And these colour wheels he designed, obviously colour equates to emotion.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But at this time, because well, what happened during the terror, the aristocracy's homes are raided and what do they do? They take whatever they can find, gems. The gold goes more into politics and a war effort Gems, cheap. Nobody wants them. So they flooded the market in Europe. The prices completely dropped. And obviously the jewels of this time are abundant with so many gems and the gift-giving of sentimentality, especially with those dearest regard and love as well, jewels that were made in high volume were all about the colour of the gems, not just the gems themselves and the symbols that went with it, so they still produce these today. You, you can find it Modern Jewel as a dearest ring. And because of the popularity, not just of the gems but of the colours for sentimental gift-giving, you've got paste jewellery, so glass and foil jewellery to emulate the gems themselves because it's about the meaning within the sentiment. So with that, um, they're still as popular and as, as valuable as an actual gem for the turn of the 19th century. Those jewels are actually very, very sought after. So paste became something which was sentimental, popular, and common as a gift give because it was there, you know, it was being used.
2: And easy to produce, I'm sure. It was easier to do that than it was to find a bunch of gems and find metals and things like that if you could. Well, we all know the world of reproduction is now a – it goes hand in hand with regular production as soon as something's made something is reproduced to mimic Boys. that mm-hmm. item and i was I as that. i'm sitting here listening to you talk i'm thinking of all the modern day things we see now that are of sentiment and how almost like throwaway the behavior has come of like you can go to a gas station and get a six pack of beer and a pack of smokes and a rose like a wooden rose or a yeah, a cheap true. ring or something like that and how we've just kind of as we've done with everything that we consume, it's just yeah another part of our lives.
0: Such a nineteenth-century thing to do as well—to have to go on it, to travel. So by the 1850s, you've got the um, interconnecting rail networks throughout the UK, but you've also got faster transit and people of a wealthier middle class, and they could. You know, they could have their own businesses, which is almost unheard of for regular people previously, and they could travel. So they did travel to America. They did find things and take them back. They did travel around Europe and it was cost effective and it could be done within months as opposed to an entire lifetime dedication of a journey. So having having these wonderful cottage industries that popped up at this time in areas that weren't known for their high production to give something that was made to isolate it to a place let's say it could have been a town in Germany or Italy or even in America these people were, you know using sentimental like local sentimental pride for people to travel and take it back Um, we see this especially uh, in Scottish pebble jewelry and the Scottish jewelry that was produced because uh, Victoria and Albert they traveled to Balmoral Castle up there so as they traveled it created a Scottish season which was their holidays but people in England would go to Scotland on, on their go,
2: holiday trip.
0: <laughs> yep. They would buy these wonderful, it could be a, a horseshoe motif, it could be a bow or a buckle motif with um, these wonderful Scottish stones set in them of varieties of colours too, but it became so identifiable as Scottish jewellery that there it is. And to wear that as a loved one, well, it's not just a token of status as it would have been previously, but it's just a gift It's It's not an afterthought, but it's not something which is, this is a statement of you wear this and I'm your property and you're my property forever. It's just, Oh, this is a nice to have.
2: Well, and it, um, it's, it's like, we really think we do something right. As modern day humans, when mm. really this is when souvenir shopping and trading started, when you, you went out of town, like you go to Las Vegas and then you come back and you're like, I got everybody a shot glass from Las <laughs> Vegas.
1: I know. I love you. I had fun. Thank you. <laughs>
2: this is kind of that, what it sounds like to me is that version of, yes, they're excited to go and find different things for different areas because now everything's connected and they yes, can bring absolutely. stuff back, but it's just continuing to drive that market of what else can we get people to take back?
0: It was huge. And you've got towns like Birmingham being the most highly productive in jewelry for that time because Even Scotland couldn't produce as many jewels as the demand met, so they would outsource it to places like Birmingham to produce. And you've got, uh, so the the Hallmarking Act of 1854 allowed for lower-grade alloys. Oh, here's a good one, actually. Based on that, sentimental jewellery as souvenir jewellery took off unlike it had ever been seen before. This was also part of a culture that needed to present itself through mass commercialization. and also you couldn't actually, I mean you could, but it was improper even for a lower middle class to get married if they could not support the wife. So even if you're on about three pounds a week, at least you could support your wife. Mm. Very important for especially the 1860s. Now, because these jewels were so light and so cheap matter, of really cheap alloys, they used to fill them with plaster and wood to try and make them heavy. So,
2: so that they felt like they were worth something? Yeah, you would go hmm. to
0: an exhibition, so let's say the Great Exhibition or one of the exhibitions that was on, and you might be of lower middle class. You could still wear jewellery to it and still look good and presentable in society, even though it's not a very – I've got a few of them myself, actually – not a very highly you know quality jewel at all. mm mm-hmm. Um, so that souvenir jewellery that happened was definitely part of the love token craze that lasted all the way through the 19th century and through the 20th century. So sweetheart tokens were things which um, you might get a brooch with two love hearts or a, a wreath, a laurel wreath, uh, two birds on it maybe. Very cheap. They might be out of pinchbeck or, or some like very uh, adulterated silver. And the one thing that I love with Victorian sentimental jewelry, uh, are the name brooches, they've got, they've got the name in them. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure if you go to a, a gift store, you know, and they've got the little number plates with people's names in them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Same thing with jewelry. You get a little brooch with Minnie or Alice or something like that. That's you it. Know, I want one of those. Something
2: that's kind of always been there. It's like, hi, I love this. Can you please just put my name on it? <laughs> I, yeah. I need, can you do that in a brooch earrings, bracelet, tiara, Cape. That way, you know, if you lose it and somebody
1: finds it, they'll be like, oh, that's Sam's.
2: Right. Otherwise, unless you have a hard to find name and then you're just forever disappointed as a child.
1: Yes. Both my children are that way.
2: Yeah. You know, oddly <laughs> enough, Samantha wasn't as popular. It was always oh. like Sam. And I was like, well, technically, yeah, but I'm not okay with it. <laughs> like
0: my- in the, in the last, in the 1900s when I grew up, um, Hayden was not a common name at all. So yeah, no. I never... Never, ever. Was
2: it your daughter that said to you about being born in the 1900s?
1: Yes. Yes. (laughs) She said, so so you were born in the mid-1900s? And I was like, (laughs) (laughs) what? No. She also refers back in the olden days, anytime I was a child. Oh, boy. Back in the olden days, did you have this? And I'm like, yes. I'm not like... (laughs) We had electricity and indoor plumbing, believe it or not. I saw... The Speaking of olden times, okay, ask as millennials
2: and zenials right, were of, of the, the, the late 19th century. <laughs> ask somebody much younger than you to answer the phone without using a phone and see what hand motion they make. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> when we go to answer the phone, what, what gesture do you make, Hayden, to mimic that you're on the phone?
0: You go well, like just this, to do right? This yeah. The, yeah. The thumb and the, yeah no,
2: fingers. they do this. <laughs> Oh.
0: Uh, yeah exactly of course <laughs> they just yeah, like to...
1: a claw to their face I know my kid, I did that to my kids and they'd be like I did this and they're like why are you giving the shaka and I'm like <laughs> no it, that's the tel- like this, this is what I... the, but you talk, and then like I had to pull up a picture well it's like do you not look at the phone icon on your cell phone
2: yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. it's not a square within <laughs> <Yeah>. a square <laughs> it, it will it's,
0: be it's soon it's changing <laughs> it, and you, all those things those icons and those symbols that we thought of like a disc picture, you know, a floppy disc to be for a save. Oh, yeah. Got to go because people don't understand it anymore. <laughs> right. In fact, I knew a lady and she said her two kids at the ages of five and seven, their literacy is dropping right off because they can't really spell anything. And I said, oh, that's that's a bit odd. She goes, no, no, they use Siri. They just talk into the phone when they've got a question. Oh, my Lord. Right. Funnily enough, that's this is actually related to sentimental jewelry, believe it or not. So I mentioned the dictionary back in the mid-18th century, but previous to that we had these posy rings, otherwise poetry rings, and these were hugely popular for lovers to give each other back in about 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th centuries. You've got them of all classes. You've got really basic ones and you've got very high-quality ones with gems and God knows what in there. But inside you would find a sentiment, and it was usually written in Latin or Middle French, mm-hmm. or my favourite, which is phonetic English, just like Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And they were speaking more like this, so to thee I choose, and C-H-U-S-E. So it was very guttural. It was almost like some sort of company that they're talking about at, but it's not as proud as popper. They're supposed to be talking as the Queen's English of the 19th century. So this difference, you see that wonderful phonetic spelling, and... What they did, the, the ones who were going to university and being, you know, educated, they would, especially Latin, they would put it towards their cousins, male cousins, to try and find a loving sentiment from literacy, whether, whatever book that was from or from the Bible, to use for this person's jewel, their, their family member's jewel. And we've got wonderful um, documents saying that, you know, I'm, I'm not smart enough, I can't find the right sentiment, I don't like anything that I can find. And they would do that. So they would produce these wonderful posy rings to give them to a lover. That's kind of where a lot of our modern rings stem from, to be honest.
2: I had just a huge like, what because a posy ring, pocket full of posies. But hmm. poets, I never connected the dots on that.
1: Uh,
2: oh, uh, And my brain just was like, oh, duh. duh. Yeah, I didn't catch it until you said it. So. Also, I have to commend you on that accent. You, would, you could go either way. Cockney, England or Australia.
0: (laughs) You better be... I've got a horrible problem with... I can appropriate accents very quickly. I think it's... I've got a silly brain, so I can... okay.
2: No, I do the same thing. And every time we talk to you, I'm like, don't mimic the accent. I know you want to. I know you want to start saying things like he's saying them, but don't do
0: it.
1: Well, that's... I get a lot of patients. They'll be like, I know where you're from by your accent. And I'm like, what accent? (laughs) And I've had... Indiana, oh. North Dakota, Missouri has been the latest one, and uh somebody asked if what part of Georgia I was from.
2: Which fair, your mother is from the south. So I could get maybe like a half teaspoon of
1: accent from that. <laughs> I mean I do say y'all a lot. Like when I'm mad at my kids, I'm like, Y'all better stop. But no, I don't okay. have an accent.
0: I find that fascinating because of America's settlement, that's when the accents stem from. So a lot of Australia is identical. And whether we've had English come over from 1840 to 1850, especially 1850, uh, Melbourne alone jumped in from 1852 to 53 from being mostly an outpost town with a a harbour to basically take care of the the shipping for the farmers, 75,000 people in one year, and Polish, American... Irish, Scottish, French, you name it, and they all camped out just not far from where I'm living and went to the gold fields because we struck gold here. Mm. Um, alluvial gold, you could just pick it up off the ground. Panning for it was dead simple. So we went, in, we were the, we was the second most uh, wealthy city in, on the planet by the 1880s, I believe, uh, only once behind London because of the gold. Wow. That's why we just So a lot of our accents are a bit intermixed and interblended. And, hey, my mother's, you know, basically Italian and my dad's, you know, all over the place. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And funnily enough, when I'm in America, I had some issues with customer service last time I was there. I don't know what it is about my accent, but no one seemed to understand me. So when I started, like, talking like this, they, they started to understand what I was talking about. <laughs> but I, I, I didn't see it myself, but, hey, <laughs> So My then,
2: brain literally just went, wait a minute. why? <laughs> I was like, did we lose you? I
1: was like, huh? No, I just I, pushed Hayden out of the way yeah. for a second. How's your brother Braden people? just coming right in. Because <laughs> I lived on an Air Force base and so people from all over you would be. And um, I had a friend and she was Filipino and she's uh, the Filipino language was her main language. Nobody could understand her but me. And I just kept looking at everybody and I'm like, what aren't you hearing? She literally is giving the answers to everything you just asked. And she would just look at me and she was like, these people are stupid. And I'm like, <laughs> my, I guess I don't know. Like. My brain isn't getting it.
2: Yeah. Cause I don't have, I don't, and this is just, maybe it's because of the British influence and watching a lot of things with accents in them that when I listen to you speak, I, the accent kind of drops off for me and it's just your voice. I don't know.
0: That's what I hear. I, I I do notice that a lot of people who are English trained internationally, they've got an American accent because they've learned from Americans, especially in Germany, or in TV. They've learned from television. And I knew a Scottish guy who, a young kid, he lived around the world with his parents. Though so dad was a pilot. he I couldn't sense a Scottish accent in him whatsoever. He was you know, talking more like this. And I, I didn't. I couldn't pick it up, but everyone's like, he's so Scottish. I'm like, that's not.
2: <laughs> like, going, I'm oh. Not getting that at I, all.
0: Glasgow region or like <laughs> Dublin Brogue. It's I need like a dictionary to try and figure out what the heck is going on here. <laughs> it's-
2: no, I can't. When it's when you start to get into those two sectors of the world. Oh, yeah. I'm like, are you sure you're still communicating to me in Anglo-Saxon based? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Hey look when I when I lived in China most of my communication was done through complete empathy and hand gestures yeah <laughs> and I was I was I had 50 mainland chinese people who barely spoke well maybe 3 or 4 spoke 5% english and the rest of it was mostly gesticulation pointing <laughs> No, I've got so many stories, but that's for another podcast, I'm sure. Yeah, (laughs) for sure. We're going to go into that later. Well,
2: I wanted to ask you, we had some listener questions come in about, and I wanted to talk while I'm getting these up, you mentioned when we were starting to record that you were going to pick up some very special rings. Now, I was sitting here thinking after you said that, and I was like, oh my God, a Hayden Peters wedding. (laughs) <laughs> with the how okay where's the dial at on the symbolism for you for this event like is it all the way to 11 like this is your moment to shine and it's just going to be from top to bottom symbolism or are you going to like put it to a platter
0: you know very much that the symbol is in the sentiment between the two of us i think So as a bit of context, uh, I've been engaged. I'm getting married very, very soon, and I'm having wedding rings produced, and I'm picking them up uh, this weekend, actually. So I'm looking forward to that. And the symbolism for me came down to the birthstones. Oh. And she's aquamarine, and I'm diamond. I'm
2: aquamarine. Me too. Oh, really? Yeah, March
0: 27th. March 6th. That's it. There you go. It's the March, and I, I don't know, but apparently I'm Taurus. I'm April twenty fourth, so I guess it all fits together very well indeed. Like I've I've never felt so wonderfully sentimental or happy in my entire life. Oh,
1: I'm so happy. Well,
0: well, what I'm doing is I'm having the rings sand cast, uh, and what the artist does is she has silver and eighteen karat gold, and the way that the gold pushes through the design of the, the, the silver, it creates almost like an intercontinental, like little landmasses of gold that pop yeah. out of the silver itself.
2: Oh, and
0: if you look up into the galaxy and you notice the way that the Milky Way curves around the planet, you start to see that the universe has this particular smile and the way that it's got these interconnecting dots of stars and planets which really do relate to the way we are universal and we meet always in a circle and we're right at the centre of that. So I see that as a way to represent us coming together. And also the rings themselves, With I've picked out the diamond and the aquamarine stones, and ours are going to be reversed. So if you put the two hands together, it'll be diamond, aquamarine, aquamarine, diamond, so moving in and out like pal- a palindrome. Oh, I love I'm, it. I'm doing that. But from the, the ceremonial point of view, um, you know, um, something that's old, something that's borrowed, something that's blue will be part of it. But uh, sentimentality, I'm actually keeping it a low-key one. So as much as I'm verbose with my love of all these (laughs) sentiments, uh, yeah, I've I've worked with people on their weddings previously uh, and they always have a sort of, well, many, many weddings actually. I've worked on people's weddings for um, costume and sentimentality and it seems to be a thing, but... uh, the weddings are never as pleasurable as they seem because years of planning go into it, tens of thousands of dollars, and the ceremony itself devalues that moment between the two people. And I'm, I'm kind of focused on that really immediate sentiment. So that's what my focus is, just getting that right, having immediate family, a good yeah. dinner. And, um, you know, that sentiment's on the finger always. I'll probably never take it off.
2: Ugh. I just, I can't tell you we spoke, you know, last October and you guys were dating. I don't know if you were engaged or not yet, but to watch you light up de- explaining the thought process you've had is just the sweetest thing I think I've ever seen to watch your adoration pour out in the explanation of your tokens of love. Like that is just beautiful.
0: Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Well, I, I did uh, because she is in America, so we've had to obviously correspond by the internet and in postal mail. Um, I think this, uh, this is coming out uh, Valentine's Day. I, or uh, this will
2: come out the very end of this month.
0: Very good, so I can, I can say what it is. Um, I actually sent her a package, and what I did, because she's an artist, so I'm not so much an artist, though in my mind I, I think I can be. <laughs> so what I did was I actually purchased a canvas, and paint and I created this rendition of uh, a love heart from what I would consider the, say about the turn of the 19th century, late 18th century and I did it in several different colours with this sort of burning pattern around it as well and uh, she's going to be opening that up on Valentine's Day
2: Oh, oh. Bravo sir, so good. bravo good You win Yeah, <laughs> I gotta go tell my husband to step it up <laughs> Because we had, you know, we had our certain amount of symbolism during our wedding. I wore my grandmother's pearls. I had the blue, something old. Did you have things like that?
1: Yeah, we did. I, we honestly just wanted to keep it very simple. Mm -hmm. It was just about us. And we wanted just to have a great time with our family. And I mean, Mm -hmm. everybody else was stressed out about everything except for me. Mm -hmm. me and my husband, we were just like, we, it's raining. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm gonna rain whether we do this or not but it actually stopped raining it was a beautiful day we had so much fun and we've been married for 15 years now
0: that's beautiful i bet every day is as beautiful as the last
1: yeah he is he he gets me mm-hmm. nobody else gets me like him and i tell him every day i am lucky 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 to have him that i got yeah you to
2: understand all yeah the bits what? of me yeah uh-huh.
1: mm-hmm
0: yeah. Actually, the the one person I do shower a lot of sentimental tokens on is my little brother, and he is not. He's a very sentimental person. He's also into fashion, but he's also very much the Australian male. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he's working on cars, motorbikes, that sort of thing, and I've bought him little necklaces with things on it, you know. And he came to me last year, and he liked that person he was working with had a crucifix around the neck and I said oh Jack you know you're not very religious <laughs> so I don't know if that's is that what you really want to represent and it was more of a fashion item for him and I thought I can fix this so what I did is because both my fam- our family's backgrounds a lot of them uh, work in shipping or the sea so fisher people you know and I thought of the anchor as having the cross-representation on it, but also being the anchor to represent our family. So I bought him kind of a joker present, which was kind of a really tacky crucifix. <laughs> and I got him a 19th century anchor on the chain. And he still wears, he wears the, the chain now uh, on a daily basis. And I thought, ah, I've gotten through to him, thank you. Yeah.
2: <laughs> you've made your, your peace with him. Now he's like, oh, no, I'm not wearing that crucifix. This so this is this a 19th century anchor? Yeah. You wouldn't know how to touch it. We got some really interesting questions in today. And one of them is, have you ever made something or had one made for yourself? Any type of sentiment or mourning pieces? Have you ever, I mean, I know you had your ring made, but have you had anything else made for you?
0: Oh, yes. Um, for my uh, previous partner, I actually had, this is a long time ago. But what I did is I'd never, ever doctor an original ring or a jewel. I'm, I'm a, just a custodian for that. However, there's a, a jeweler and a, an antique dealer named Marley Miller in Portsea near Melbourne, Australia, so in Victoria. And I used to go there when I was very young, very young. Um, I'm talking my parents would take me out to these antique shops when I was, you know, about five mm-hmm. years old. And she's still there today. And when I was about 18, I discovered this ring in a box of others and it was mostly junk so the it had a stone in it that was cracked and it swiveled it was about 1860 and the other side of it was gone but it was hair so there was a little bit left but not much it was in pretty ordinary condition so what I did is my partner at the time I did two things I had an 1830 I still have it, an 1836 morning ring with this wonderful um, Gothic Revival style with a beautiful embellishment of gold. And the Gothic Revival style used a lot of Baroque design in it. So it's got lots of um, roses and acanthus around mm-hmm. the edging. And I wanted to use it as a way to, you know, be sentimental towards her. So I got it to try on the ring and it fitted her. So I took that ring and I had the other ring that was broken. And my jeweler actually um, recreated the 1836 one as a gold band. And my one, they completely refurbished, filled with proper gold because it was hollow. And I put her hair in there and I reversed that with a shield of black onyx. Wow. So that was what I did. That was sentimental there. Uh, and I actually had my auntie's hair, which I didn't think she was expecting. Um, <laughs> she, she's big into jewel. Well, not my kind of jewelry. She's, she likes the flashy stuff. You uh-huh. know. My so, grandmother
2: <laughs> likes the costumey type stuff.
0: Yeah, I think uh, an eighty-five-year-old Italian woman. Sorry, oh, thank you. good
2: God! I yeah. love it already.
0: Oh, we're going, and uh, she. Uh, <laughs> so she said she wanted to buy me a jewel because she knows I like jewellery. And I said, "Well, how about you give me the money and I'll buy myself something sentimental because I don't think you're going to get me something I like." And I went out and I, I found a wonderful little band which has a compartment that flips open with a clasp. Um, but the the hair was gone, so I put the, her hair in it, oh. and. Uh, She thought it was grotesque.
2: (laughs) I feel like you and I giving gifts to people were like, I just hope you love
1: this. Then they open it and they're like, what in the actual hell is this? (laughs) It's hair from your first puppy. Don't worry. Anything you give me, I know there's very much sentiment to that. I
2: like when people try to like out me in front of new people. I'll know. Yeah, well, Sam collects hair. And then they just look at me and they're like, I'm not surprised. And I'm like, thank you. I'm glad you can pick my vibe up
0: from across the room. Ugh, yeah. Trust me. Whenever, whenever someone notable dies here, I always go on Australian radio. So, so here we go. It's wheel out Hayden to talk about dead people's hair for, you know, <laughs> 10 minutes. And... Who do,
1: who do we know? We, we know somebody. I know. we know I know somebody. we've had oh, them on, on before. <laughs> I
0: don't know. Anyone who wants to listen, you know?
2: Oh yeah. That's uh, I think you and I are the same in that. We're like, Oh, you want to listen to me talk about this obscure interest I have? Sit down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. Have, else to be. This one was interesting and I've always wanted, you know, you talk about how different um, items are connected with different energy. Mm-hmm. Have you ever gotten bad vibes from a piece of jewelry? Um,
0: not really, no. Uh, I've, I've always felt nothing but love. I find bad vibes more from a certain place or scenario. Actually, I have a st- it's a reasonably long story about that, but I don't think it's, well, if you
2: can you readers digest it? I'm like, we could save it for another episode too. We'll just make it a Hayden mothball recurring. Listen okay. To Hayden stories.
0: A block away from where I live back in uh, the turn of the year 2000, my cousin lived in this place and he disappeared overnight, him and his partner. And I used to go out with him every weekend and he would not answer his phone. So I eventually rang up his dad and asked where he was. And he was living with my uncle and I asked him what's going on, and he said that place is haunted. And previously, he said there were these steps up and down the roof, which sounded like footsteps at 5 a.m. every morning. And I'm a skeptic, and my dad is too. We looked at the roof once and we said, Oh, it's an animal's gotten up there. And he went up there, couldn't see anything. So, what happened was, he said there was this horrible smell, and it smelled like rotting meat. And his partner, who's also a skeptic, she's from the country, she's not religious. Um, she saw a man staring at her as she exited the bathroom in the hallway with this face with a little beard and a very turn-of-the-century outfit, you know, turn of the 20th century. So she ran in, she had nightmares, and what happened was he he rang up the previous renters of this place and he flat-out started, without suggesting anything, he just wondered why they left. And they flat-out said, it's haunted, and they described the man in exact detail They said there was a smell. Then they said there were this flies started coming up. And they said they weren't afraid of that guy, but they thought he was kind of a malevolent presence. But eventually enough was enough. And um, I was doing my research into 19th century photography and jewellery, especially in Melbourne, Australia. And lo and behold, there was a murder there. And they've got a picture of the fellow, Mr. Dennings, who was executed. And he murdered a lady and hid her there so that's a that's a hell of a story for the late nineteenth uh, oh. century turn of the twentieth century
2: Are you still a skeptic about it, or do you believe that it's haunted
0: oh, at the time i was I was living because I was begging he still had several months left on the rent to go back in there, but he didn't he never went back. He actually got removalists to go and he never went back in there he was terrified and he won't talk about it anymore but um I wanted to stay there I was desperate to because for me it's like that's the most Confirming of the afterlife that it's ever be—that's the most joyous thing you could ever have. Um, and for the jewelry, no. I mean, I just Sam get. Sam is get... the same
1: way. I can yeah. see Sam like I want to go there too. Yeah, a haunted sleepover. Oh, it'd
0: be... come on! What, what, what could be better confirmation than that? I'd be living my best life, completely I just, carefree. I I, I will just listen sleeping. to the stories.
2: We hear footprints. We both sit up and look at each other. Light a candle. Did you hear that? Did you hear that ghost? It's here. Let's go ask it about um, depictions of mourning in his time frame. Excuse me, Ghost, you have a minute to talk for just a second. Do you remember seeing troves and troves of like hair art or uh, rings or I, you don't have to give a long answer. I'm just curious.
0: <laughs> was he's just like? like, why did You're I like hot a you dying. guys?
2: Want Wrong a lady.
0: I think that's the, the thing about the memorial jewelry is that it does come from a place of love. And rarely does it come from instant shock. It comes from grief, of course, and there's a lot of sadness involved with it. But the executives of the will, you know, they're the ones who would enable the rings to be produced, the ones that were made in volume. And remember, hundreds could be made for a funeral and given out at the funeral. Mm-hmm. They're very much, they're just tokens, really. They're, they're a marker in time of that person. But the ones with hair, they're more for the immediate family and... They're the ones that, yeah, there's just so much love and, and the desperation of wanting to capture the memory of somebody as opposed to the, the, the shock of the event. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that relates to a lot of the, the feeling of it, but I've, I've never had, even photography and things, like um, post mortem, I haven't had that kind of shock feeling. Which at is all.
2: good because you deal with a lot of those things. So you would be mm. a very haunted man if that was <laughs> the case.
0: I thought I've got over six hundred pieces of jewelry around me, and I thought, well, why is why is why are books flying off my shelf? Or you know, <laughs> you're
1: like, why didn't that Lights happen to me?
0: 100%. They're probably like, well, at least somebody's still keeping
2: our shit. I know. <laughs> like I'm not gonna mess with them. Guys, to go throw our stuff away, don't poke the bear. So this one kind of goes along with that same um, thing of speaking of the dead. If you could have one famous person, dead or alive, from whom you could get a piece of hair jewelry, who would it be? Who would you go, hi, excuse me, ma'am, or sir, or sir, they, them, whatever uh, they go by.
0: Gosh. I'm. If I'm going to go with my heart of hearts, it's probably John Lennon. Oh, oh
1: good one. Nice pick. That's a good uh, one. You know,
0: for all his good and bad traits. I mean, I, I he's one of those few people who people have asked, who would you want to sit down and have dinner with? I'm like, nothing John Lennon. I think we could be at least funny. Mm-hmm. So that's something. But people would normally think I'd say Queen Victoria, but I don't think we'd make great company. She no. sounds pompous. She does. I a little wanna... bit. Maybe if it, she had a couple of wines in her, maybe. To yeah, she might just need to of... be loosened up just a little yeah. bit. Yeah,
2: Give her a little so. bit. Of... I would pick David Bowie. That does not
0: surprise Oh, that's a good me. one. Yeah.
2: yeah. If I could sit down and talk with anybody at any time oh. in his life, I would sit down with David Bowie.
0: Damn. That's very good. I, <laughs> see, I'm still <laughs> like, in denial that he's passed away. So, Yes. I actually wore a morning ring for him for about, oh God, two or two and a half years. I should have. I was, you kind of did your own thing.
2: (laughs) So it's, I've talked about it in an episode before of my remembrance of the day David Bowie died (sighs) was the day after I decided to try ecstasy for the first time. Oh my God. So the night before I had done some Molly, had a beautiful experience, nothing like what they talk about on Fox News. And uh, I woke up the next day and a, your serotonin is gone, right? You're just kind of a zombie. And we get to the gas station. And I'm getting a Gatorade and I open my phone and I go just like this. I go, oh, God. Oh, my God. <laughs> and my friend's like, what? And I'm like, David Bowie died. And I'm like, and I can't cry. I wasted all my emotion last night and I can't even feel this.
0: Oh, it must have been felt like an sociopath. Or... <laughs> I yeah. did. I was just like, I've got a actually connect with my little brother on David Bowie Music a lot. So it's funny enough, where I, I went to, when my brother passed away in 1998, I hadn't been to where my mother came from, which is the Adelaide, a, a city in the state of South Australia, the capital. And I hadn't been because I've got family there and I hadn't seen them since then. So what's it, 2016? So since 1998 and 2016. And the, the album dropped. And we drove up the Adelaide Hills, we went to get lunch and we're listening to the whole album back to front and back to front and we came back to where my, my parents were married at the forefront of a place called Largs Bay and uh, beautiful, the most beautiful sunsets that I've ever seen and it confirmed it as well because I hadn't seen one since the 90s. And I get back, so we're having a great time thinking, this musicians he's much happier than he's been in about 10 years, I'm loving it, this is great, this is the best album I've ever and then he passed away. I'm Like, ah, huh? so sat there, bottle of wine where my parents were married, and um, watched the sunset on, across the sea. And that was um, that was sad and confronting. But oh, what a shock! What a shock! But in, like a
2: poetic way, I think he would have been pleased with that. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah I hope oh. so.
2: Yeah, that well, that album is still hard to listen to, knowing that he was writing it facing his own mortality.
1: I
0: know. Yeah, and I consider it one of the. Better, it's an amazing album. I love it. I'm so happy with it. I'm like, this. He's got his groove back, you know. Mm -hmm. It's just not acoustic sad songs anymore.
2: Yeah, it was. I remember I was an educator, and then I'll ask the last question. I was an educator for a hair company, and I was on a flight, and they were playing a David Bowie documentary. And it was the, was it the year he died or the year, the same year that he died. So it was talking about the, the culmination of that album and how every person that worked on that album, he had signed an NDA and he couldn't, he wouldn't let them take any of their musical instruments that they were working on the album with home. Like everything was so secretive because he knew it was his last masterpiece.
0: Gosh. So he yeah, just...
1: There's almost some beauty into that, knowing that it's your last, Thing, and you can just put your heart and soul to it, knowing that it's going out with the love that he had mm-hmm. for his fans. Mm-hmm.
0: That's his morning jewel for all of us to share. Yeah, mm-hmm. it is.
1: Yeah, it's beautiful. He had this quote in that
2: documentary. He says, if all people remember me for is a great haircut, I guess I'm okay with that. <laughs> I thought that was sweet. So this is um, the last one. And it's interesting because oh. you deal in intellectual property of your own. Have you ever had uh, to copyright his material to keep people from stealing your research? What does that side of your life look like?
0: That's a big question. Um,
2: <laughs> I'm like, did that person know you personally? And they're I like, know, I'm going to ask this question. I
0: think Maybe they have. because kind of yeah, I've <laughs> been plagiarized many, many, many times. Um, I do get Uh, email notifications on a daily basis because academic papers get vetted and my name pops up a hell of a lot. Oh, Uh, no. I've had people quite proud of the fact. um, I've written pieces for um, the British Museum and I've republished them without references and just because people keep, like, trying to appropriate the work. uh, It's confronting and it's happened several times in somewhat high-profile, I won't get into detail, but I've been to museums where literally the curators during an exhibition have emailed me saying, we've used your work, thank you. And I've come into it and I, I literally walked into a museum and there was a wall about sentimental jewellery that was cut and paste from Arden Morning. And the person who I was with goes, I think that's your work. And I'm just nodding my head and yes.
2: <laughs> I guess I'm filled with Australian rage right now for that.
0: I just try and see the good in everybody. And I try and hope that if I share anything with people, it educates. Because I do believe it's a it's a right, not a privilege, to be learning. And I've got so much knowledge that the more I share, the more people share. And then it gets better. Mm. Um, taking credit for it, however, has been quite hurtful in professional and personal life. Mm -hmm. So um, it's difficult, but I'm going to have a publication come out, hopefully, either by, I'd say it'll be early next year, which will be very much, it's Harvard referenced, it's going to be about 120,000 words and every 10,000 will be based on a different area of memorial and sentimentality based on all of my knowledge and I've been in heavy research mode for it and it will be my publication and... It's going to, it's, I mean, I'm, I'm editing as I work. So I'm actually about 35,000 words into it. And I, I believe it, it'll either be a series of essays which dovetail into the next, mm. or it will be one full publication. And that will be the culmination of um, all the work that I've done thus far.
2: I can't wait to get my hands on that because I told you in our previous episode when I wrote my little dissertation on hair work and mourning and all of those things, I used because you are the most prominent and prevalent person in that world that has it so concise and without like the mumbo jumbo and pompousness where it's just this is what it is. Mm -hmm. And that's what I love so much about it. And I love every time we sit down and talk with you the information feels so accessible. Like I know we sit here quietly and watch you and listen to you, but it's really cause it's like full absorption mode of just being like this all finally makes sense.
0: Yeah. That's yeah. Thank you. Cause that's really all I wanted at the end of the day. And I remember I I did a, a lecture in front of about 200 people and a very elderly lady came up to me and she said something along the lines of, I've been a fan of and researching the British monarchy all my life and you're the first person who's ever given it back to me in a way that I understand. Mm-hmm. And I said, thank you, because it's not, it's obfuscation for the sake of confusion. And it, it did take me 15 years to get it right, where I had the confidence to get in front of the British museum collectors, um, the the biggest and oldest art and antique dealers mm-hmm. on the planet, and they That fifty-two people in the waiting room downstairs—they couldn't get enough seats. Wow! So if someone left, they'd put them back in the seats. And um, that validation that I got from that, because what did they say? Uh, They went to the person who was hosting it, um, Fellows Auctions, and they said, "It's in Mayfair in London." And they said, "We've been collecting and and dealing with antiques for over sixty years, and this is the first time we've come to one of these events and learned something new." Wow! And that—that was. I was almost in tears. That was the most beautiful thing because it just, when it comes to all things in life, and I think that even through the hard times, because sometimes there are hard times, whether, you know, you've got someone who is negative or wants to be contentious or creates a bit of a problem, um, you can get away from it, but you know you're in love with it when you realise that's your happy space. Mm -hmm. And when I'm surrounded by my research and my books and I'm writing... It is the greatest feeling on earth, next to being in love, of course. Mm -hmm. But it's my joy and happy place. And I think even if you, you know, put me in a padded cell and gave me a laptop, I'm still going to do it. And I'm never going to stop. And I, I just find it so joyful because at the end of the day, as you know, doing this podcast and meeting people and learning things from them, you're always constantly moving forward and it's changing and it's adapting and your brain has to absorb. And if it was the same old, same old... I couldn't do it. I can't do, I'm not designed to do the same thing in a rhythm or a pattern day in, day out it just doesn't, it's not in my DNA. So no. yeah, as long as you're happy, I mean, at the end of the day, you're, you're born to do what you're born to do and keep on giving and keep on sharing and making people happy. That's, that's my lot in life.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I fully, fully, fully agree with that and love that you're on that page with it. Cause I know for Jill and I with this show, is all we want is people to feel included in a community that has been for a certain class and group of people for such a long time that it's like no we want to hear about what you're collecting and what you love and all the weird stuff that you're just nerding out about in your basement or yeah, you yeah. know you're staying up late at night to read articles on something this is your place to come and just divulge all of it and that's there you go. If that's if we can do that for five people, I'd be happy.
0: Yeah. And never stop. If you're enjoying it, never stop. Just keep doing what you love. And you're always going to get something in return from it. And as my old dad's saying, is my saying too, ex nilo nil fit, out of nothing comes nothing. So mm. every moment is a conscientious one. Whether I want to sit and watch TV or if I want to do writing, I made a decision to do that. Mm-hmm. So it's a joy. And, you know, there are funny times. The, the more work I do, <laughs> I forget things. That's half the reason why I write it down. So <laughs> you, you, you Google the question and your own article comes up that you've written 5,000 words <laughs> on. Telling you. Oh, okay.
1: Like, I hi. guess I did. You're like, oh, oh, good. I already know the answer. Oh, good.
2: Hi, <laughs> five years ago, me. Could you like pull that file out, please, from
0: the oh, hard drive? I look at that stuff. Like, how, how did I do that? <laughs> I oh, my God. But, you know, that's the thing. You can only force so much in. It's just, I, my greatest fear is losing what comes out <laughs> um, and I've had a very rich life and I'm, I'm actually on the side projects um, I've lived internationally I've done a lot of things in my private life and my business and professional life so I'm actually working after I do this publication on my own memoirs to get as much down from when I was a child oh. from the people that I've lost to my career and it's, a, it's almost just for me just to reflect back on. And if it's a bit of fun, which I tend to like the humor side of life, then hopefully it's going to be good for somebody. I did write 52,000 words about my year in China, but that's another story. Hey, that's perfect.
2: <laughs> you know, I think that's a perfect thing to do. And I think we think as human beings that we have to be of some type of importance to write a story like that, where really in 60 years, there's going to be three people sitting down going, so I found this collection of mourning and sentiment jewelry that this guy dedicated his life to. And I found his unpublished memoir. Like think I try to think of things that way of one day, somebody is going to think they discovered something about somebody from the past. And I, I hope I can send somebody down a Google rabbit hole one day.
1: That is a good goal. (laughs) Be
2: like, who was that person? I love that.
1: I always think that too. Like when I, like my collections of stuff, I always think about the estate sale that's going to happen in my house, and I want to know what people are going to be like. Oh my God, she has a ton of this! Oh, right. That's what I always think. I'm just living to die one day and give
0: somebody
2: the estate sale of their dreams. Yeah, that's it. That's, so that's our. We got to put that I on the sure. shirt.
0: I love it. That is yeah, very good t shirt.
2: I have one last just guilty pleasure cu- question I want to ask you. What yeah. Um, oh, what's the word? Cliche Valentine's item? Do you love, or do you look forward to? It, even though it's funny, maybe a little campy.
0: I'm so primitive. For me, it's champagne, chocolates, and flowers. Me too. I, I love flowers. If if I get flowers, I'm the happiest boy in the world. I'm. Um, I don't know. It's just a thing.
1: Noted. I simple. Yeah, yeah. I, the simple things. My husband knows a bottle of red wine, and if he cleans my car. Oh, that's that is like one. the greatest gift of love that's right there. One. Yeah. <laughs> Mine would be
2: Valentine's themed gummy candy or in flowers. Oh. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Maybe yeah. a fancy gin. Oh. Mm. You never know. Nice. <laughs> As always, thank you so much for sitting down with us again. I can't believe yes. that we have this friendship and that I can <laughs> call on you with my jewelry ideas. I
1: just I still pinch myself every time. I'm like, I know him (laughs) yeah we feel very blessed to know you and forever thankful that
2: we have you to share with our listeners um i know they're really gonna love this when i announced that you were going to be back on the show they were like
1: what yes we have many inquiries of when and where (laughs) when and where so maybe one day we can
2: do a great mothball trip we can have you come teach a lecture at something. That would be. I
0: would adore that. And, you know, you're always welcome to see the collection anytime at all. You just got to uh, get to Australia and the rest. Well, it's, I'll take you from there. It's, so guys, if you start it's like seeing, the
1: top of our list, yeah. guys.
2: So Jill and I are going to start selling off all of our personal <laughs> collections know. so that we could travel to Australia.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: All Ooh, right. Actually, next time we we'll talk, I do have some more pieces that oh. I'd love to share with you. I've done a bit of a binge over the past month or so, so mm-hmm. I do have a few more that I'd love to share. So maybe for the next time. Oh, yes. yes. Also, Most we definitely. would love
2: to have you back on when you do publish your publication and all that work is culminated and everything. As always, we we wish you nothing but the best on the other side of the world. I hope Thursday treats you well. The rest yeah. of our Wednesday, it's winding down here. Don't well, do anything. Rest up, yes, <laughs> rest up and warm up. It was uh, two degrees this morning. So good lord. Yeah, you're That's welcome. Amazing. Enjoy your summer, okay? Yeah,
0: enjoy that warm yeah, weather, Southern for us. Hemisphere. Yeah, uh-huh. don't
2: get a sunburn, okay?
0: <laughs> thank you for having me on again. This is always a pleasure. Let's thank again you again soon. Yes, right. be
2: well, my friend. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Bye.